there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about the immersive entertainment industry, also known as the transportive entertainment industry in which artists create large-scale installations and innovative media and entertainment experiences, then this is the episode for you because my next guest was one of the pioneers. But before I introduce you to Michael Counts, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter. It comes out bright and early on Monday mornings, and it has unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. And please make sure to check out my new live streaming show that's every week on LinkedIn. And I'm sharing coronavirus relevant career advice. I'm interviewing guests live, all different kinds of guests in all different industries and all different sectors, taking your questions and featuring your comments live. And it's all designed as is time for coffee to help college students and young professionals turn your degrees into careers you'll love. Just click on the link. It's in show notes. You can follow me on LinkedIn, and that way you will know when the show is live so you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is Michael Counts, a 25-year-plus pioneer of immersive entertainment, also known as transportive entertainment. They create large-scale installations, theatrical productions, innovative media and entertainment experiences, often in unconventional spaces, and they do this all around the world. Michael was hailed as a mad genius by the New York Times and one of the most fertile imaginations working in New York theater today by Time Out New York. And his clients have included Michael Kors, MetLife, Amgen, The Walking Dead, and The Baltimore Orioles, to name just a handful. Michael has worked in a wide range of contexts and locations, including having done a performance on the side of a mountain in Japan, on a custom-designed bus that made Times Square and the surrounding streets its stage. And he's also directed and designed opera productions at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, New York City Center, and the Cutler Majestic Theater at Emerson College. And he's been on tour at the Hong Kong Arts Festival. Many of his innovations anticipated new developments in the worlds of live performance design in the digital realm. Michael is the founding director of Counts Projects, and he produces his work in New York City. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am here and caffeinated and ready to go. So happy to be with you. Awesome. Well, because I know you live in Brooklyn, I have to ask you how you growing. Lassen and Hennig's on Montague Street is my coffee of choice. Yeah, but how you brewing? How you doing? <laughs> Come on, don't you get it? <laughs> I, 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 yeah. <laughs> Take two. Michael, how you brewing? I am brewing awesome. Could not be better. <laughs> 
okay, well, that really fell flat. I'm sorry. I, I, I clearly didn't have my my New York accent finely tuned. Before we get into what you do and some of the absolutely incredible experiences that you've curated over the years, I thought it might be a good idea, Michael, for us to kick things off by explaining to our young listeners what you mean by immersive entertainment. Because I can imagine, I don't have to think too hard, for some, like my 16-year-old son, that would probably be video games or a virtual reality headset. But I don't think that's what your legions of fans expect when they come to a Michael Counts installation. That is correct. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I often talk about virtual reality too. Um, and the kind of virtual reality that I think you mean and, and people traditionally mean when they say virtual reality today is, is, is goggles. It's, it's, uh, it's Oculus, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's um, something you put on your face that gives you, creates a physical illusion of presence. There's another way to do that. And that's really what I've been doing for some time, which is making environments that are a virtual reality. They're a set. They render some other place. You know, Disney is a sort of virtual reality. And and a lot of the work that I do is about, you know, you mentioned it, transporting people, transportive entertainment is that takes you somewhere where the spectator is a participant. The spectator has agency. The spectator can choose where to go. Now, that happens in virtual reality video games, but I think doing it without the limitations of goggles and wires and being able to explore and discover and have agency. And, you know, I think that's where things are headed and that's what's exciting to me. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The, the current production that I'm working on that we're hoping to launch in the next, you know, year as soon as, as we emerge from COVID is a full size 60,000 square foot replica indoors of a drive in movie theater in 1965 at sunset. And it's a movie theater and a restaurant, and and it has 50 classic cars that you sit in as the seating of the movie theater. And what it's doing is it's transporting you back in time and space to a perfect summer night at a classic American drive-in movie theater in 1965. And that, to me, is entertainment. Oh, yeah, for sure. Are you going to be showing a movie? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it functions as a movie theater and as a restaurant, and it's it's intended to kind of merge those business models, movie theater, bar, restaurant, but also to make a sort of distributed theme park where we could have a small but but significant theme park that's themed around a drive-in movie theater in 1965 in markets all around the country, all, all around the world. Oh, that is so cool. I'm going to ask you in a little bit about how all of this started for you. But first, I would love it if you could walk us through what you've done for a couple of other clients, and most importantly, how you did it. For example, when you were hired to create an immersive experience for the hugely popular show, The Walking Dead. In other words, what does it take to transform what no doubt started as a sketch in your notebook into something much bigger. That was a really fun production and a a challenging one. And the idea, simply put, was to transport fans and audiences into the world of The Walking Dead, not in the form of reading a comic book or watching a TV show or playing a video game, but where you're in it, where you're sweating, where you're running and you're being chased by 
by zombies and doing it in a way that feels real. And the conceit of the of the whole experience was it was a touring production and we'd put it in a different market for a period of time. And the idea was we changed the narrative slightly for each market we went into and said, this is the night of the, the zombie apocalypse rendered in The Walking Dead started. This is the night that it started in Atlanta, in Cincinnati, in Dallas. That had a huge fan base, obviously. It was one of the biggest shows in the world at the time that we did The Walking Dead experience. And it was challenging because you you have to you know build a, a set that can break down and get set up and tour. And we wanted it to be really uh, large scale and to feel like you, know, you were going into a half an hour run for your life journey experience and and have it feel real. That to me is always the trick. I really want experiences that I create to feel like a magic trick, to feel like, how, how is this happening? How are we real? How, is, how are these zombies chasing me? And am I really at risk to kind of undo the narrative a bit? So you kind of go in thinking like, oh, this is, a, this is an attraction. This is an experience I'm going to have. And all of a sudden, midway through, you actually feel like maybe, maybe this is unraveling. Maybe these are zombies. Maybe you are at risk. And, and that to me is part of the fun. That, that is, is really, you're really transported when we've done that. So how do you do that? without the magician revealing all of his tricks. Is it live theater in the sense that there are actors who are in it? Are there animatronics? Is it all um, of the above? It's always a different set of tools. And like any good magician, you're always mixing and matching tools and devices and new technologies and old technologies to, to create a, a, what in the aggregate is a new kind of illusion. But, you know, and, and each production is different with The Walking Dead we created a narrative that didn't just include the narrative of the show, but included the narrative of you in the show. And, and by that, I mean, with each group, and in the, in the original version of The Walking Dead Experience, with each group, you'd go in in a group of eight at a time. We had two actors that went in with you that you thought were just two other patrons. And midway through, in the, in, at the end of the first scene, and so five or six minutes in, it seems like one of the people in your group has gotten taken down and, cons and like eaten by zombies. And you're like, wait, the guy standing next to me, he was a ticket buyer, right? Like, and, and so in a way, it, it, it felt like the narrative unraveled. And, and for, a, for a moment, when people's adrenaline is pumping, there was, I think some of the patrons had this thought like, wait, that guy who was standing next to me is gone, taken down by zombies. And I thought he was just a ticket buyer like me. And now all of a sudden, you're a little bit more scared. You're a little bit more uncertain of this is a, this is just a, a fictional experience. And you kind of buy into the narrative. You know, in theater, they call it the willful suspension of disbelief. And I think that in immersive theater, that's just a slightly different calculus. But when you can get people to that point, it's really exciting. And it's really terrifying. I mean, uh, Slate Magazine described it as a truly terrifying experience, what we created. And, and that to me, for, for the purposes of that genre, that was a high compliment. Oh, yeah, for sure. I can tell you right now, I would never go through that. Because <laughs> I am one of these people who, if I'm forced to watch The Walking Dead, like, or a horror movie, I'm screaming louder than any of the characters in the movie or the show. I get so wound up. Fight or flight, like in high gear. I love the way you described your intent in an article that I read about you, Michael. 
you said you see yourself as a bridge builder and as bridge building, and you're reaching your hand out to your audience as if to say, come with me. Yeah, that's been one of the most important guiding principles for me of, of, of the work that I've done. The, the community that I was sort of a part of in my early career was you know, often described as this sort of downtown New York avant-garde theater scene. And, and I think a lot of people within the avant-garde had a kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, a kind of an elitist attitude. And I think art, art tends to do that, especially high art. And where the or the idea is like, if you don't get it, uh, you know, you're kind of you know, like you too bad you didn't get it. You're kind of beneath us. And, and, and it can be art and theater. It's with all kind of culture can be kind of heady, you know, and and I wasn't into that. Like I wanted people to to get it that my heroes who made art and theater in my early life that I saw were very generous and they wanted people to to like get it to make it, you know, they didn't dumb it down, but they made it accessible. To me, accessibility is one of the most critical facets of what I try and do. And and I think I've done that, you know, in a lot of the immersive shows, but also in some of the operas where I felt like my job as a designer and director was to find a way to what I called crack the code, you know, take very I mean, the first opera I did was very esoteric music, very heady stuff. And I was like, how do I make this accessible so that if my 11-year-old son were coming in to watch it, that he would get it and he would understand it and he would be taken on a journey with it and he'd feel included. And even if it was very dense or heady, he would he would have a good time and, and sort of feel the wonder that I always want to feel in, in art and theater and entertainment. And and that to me is bridge building. Harvey Lichtenstein, who was the, the really the famous visionary leader of the Brooklyn Academy of Music for its most critical period, really built that institution. He described himself as a translator. He, he said, I take ideas of, of leading edge artists and I try and make them accessible to new audiences that maybe wouldn't think that it was for them, but upon having it translated in just the right way, discover that it is for them. Mm. And I think that's a great service. Yes, absolutely. And another service for sure is your wonderful podcast called Producing Innovation, which I highly recommend to our listeners. And in your first episode, which is entitled Thinking Outside the Box, you begin by likening the creative process for you to a plain taxing down the runway. What is it about that analogy yeah. that I really mean, it's, resonates? It's, um, I think that applies to creative projects and it applies to entrepreneurship. The way I mean it, and, and I really, that's a touchstone for me, I go back to that again and again, is this idea that I think anything, a new project, uh, an, an invention, a new business, it has to achieve what a plane going down the runway is called escape velocity. It's the point at which there's enough speed enough lift hitting the wings that it actually takes off. And you go five miles an hour under that that speed at which you achieve escape velocity, you could drive for 100 miles and never get off the runway. And I think that that's, that's a critical point in, in, in everything. And how do you get it? You know, it, it could be a, a called an inflection point in, in another, you know, model. But I think that getting oneself, getting one's productions, getting one's vision, one's career, even to a point where it ramps up to the next level is a critical thing. And that's kind of, I feel like it's always what I'm kind of going for. How do you know if one of your ideas won't be able to get lift off, no matter how hard you try? I don't know if that's happened to you. Sure. I mean, there's a, a quote that I've really 
appreciated very much in, in my life as an artist, as an entrepreneur is, was you know probably said by many, but credited to, in this instance, Russell Simmons, the founder of Def Jam Records, you know, and a hip hop legend. He said the mistake that most entrepreneurs make is they just give up too soon. And, and I've been, I'm, I'm a believer that there's always the possibility of getting to escape velocity. You'll always succeed. It may, it may change. The vision may change over time, but you'll always succeed if you just stick with it. And you mentioned it in your introduction, the Ride, which is now a, a show that just up, ran up until the start of COVID, but it had been running for 10 years in Times Square, which is, which is quite a feat. It took me over 10 years to get that off the ground. It involved raising just $12 million and getting street traffic laws changed in New York City to make it possible. I mean, a million times I wanted to give up, a million times I'm like, this is never going to happen. But you stick with it and it does. The drive-in project I'm working on now is similar. I mean, it's taken years to get off the ground because it's capital intensive. It's new. It's out of the box. You know, people love new ideas and they're scared of new ideas. So it's hard to get them done sometimes. So important to take that in. And I think it's easier, perhaps, for our young listeners to think that incredibly successful people like you just maybe had the Midas touch, you know, that there is like a sleight of hand involved, maybe even luck involved, and not necessarily shining a bright enough light on the grit and the determination and just the refusal to give up. You know, I mean, one, one of the biggest sort of offenses I ever took, I've, I've gotten a lot of press over the years and, and a lot of it was very controversial. I had people love me and say great things and, 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 and I had press say terrible things. And, and, I, and I never really got bent out of shape if they didn't like it or they didn't get it. Once the Village Voice said that the only reason I was achieving, that I was doing the things that I was doing was because it had been given to me and that I must have been like a trust fund kid or something. And that's, that's how I had gotten to where I was. And it was just because I had a lot of money and I, and I, and I just, I just bought my way to doing these huge and improbable productions. And like, I was so offended by that because one, it was just like wildly wrong and two, it just it, it implied that it wasn't a matter of hard work and sacrifice and, and effort. And it was just, you know, and I, I, that, like a lot of the other stuff didn't, you know, kind of rolled off my back. But that one really stuck because it was a lot of work and, and not just by me, but by teams of people. We had a whole community and you know, many communities in my early career and even still that just worked hard and worked that were that were bold and tireless and visionary and dedicated and, you know, to have that be, you know, because that, that to me is the only way it happens in all forms. I mean, you know, the, every quote unquote overnight success has years or decades behind it, I feel sure. I'd imagine, Michael, that it's perhaps more difficult, and I could be entirely wrong here, which is why I'm asking you, when you are doing your art because it's something that you are satisfying a need within yourself to do versus when you're working with a client to match their expectations with your creative vision. And that may not always be aligned. And I'm not saying that that was the case with this next client that I'm going to raise with you, but could you talk about what you created for the fashion designer Michael Kors in Shanghai, China? 
Yeah. I mean, that was, it, it, you're right. It is always different when you're, you, know, you have a vision that's purely your own and you're realizing it as an artist or as an entrepreneur or both versus when you're, you know, serving a, a brand. I think, you know, I always hope to bring enough, like I don't kind of get invited to do the productions where they know exactly what they want. And it's just, you know, my hired to execute their vision. Like that's not, there are people who do that. I'm not one of them. I'm definitely more of an out of the box problem solver and helper of creating a vision than of just executing someone else's vision. In the case of Coors, you know, it was a, it was a huge team of people, lots of very creative people. I mean, the budget was like almost $15 million for a one night event in Shanghai to launch his brand in for, for the Chinese market at the kind of peak of the luxury good arms race in mainland China. But you know, the, the, the joy of it was taking Michael's desire and working with a team of people to realize, to, be, to basically transport people. The, the brand at that time, the theme of that season was jet set, but, you know, very true to Michael's sort of the, the vibe that he, his, his style was run in and, and the aspirational nature of his, a lot of his designs and brand. And, and Michael had been really impacted by a few places, New York, Capri, Paris, Aspen, you know, there were places in the world, I think Capri is one of his favorite places. And, and it was just these places where, I don't know, where, where luxury and style abounds. And, and so we took the places that had really been inspiring to him. And we thought, let's transport 1500 people to those places. And we created a huge immersive environment, basically a 360 degree video projection that created a kind of virtual reality where people felt like they were being taken by, you know, Learjet to these different places in the world, all inside of a 15 minute fashion show. And it was really compelling and really successful. We did it in uh, an aircraft hangar. The CEO of Coors flew his jet to Shanghai and we used it as a prop in the show, which was wild. We created the largest holographic screen that had been made up to that point and had other holographic effects happen. So you really felt like you were immersed in the world of the show. It was thrilling and I'm glad I did it and I would do it again. It didn't have for me the same kind of, I don't know, creative satisfaction of realizing a vision that's purely my own, but it was, uh, it was a joy to do that. And you know, I've done many other projects for other clients where you're helping them realize a vision and, and hopefully you know, my contribution was done in a very unique way to me. And, and therefore, I think of them when they're most successful as a true collaboration between the brand that is Michael Kors or another brand and what I have to bring to the table. You have obviously found a way to marry your creative spirit and your entrepreneurial talents in a way that has allowed you to make, I think, a good living as an artist in immersive entertainment. What advice, Michael, would you have for our young listeners about how to approach their career in this field in a way that will also help them pay the bills? Think big and and value the work that you do. You know, when we were starting out, when I was part of what I described earlier as the sort of downtown avant-garde experimental theater scene in New York, you know, we thought big. Like, I, I didn't want to make small shows in cramped basements. 
as some of the, you know, my peers were. I wanted to do big projects and big spaces with 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 budgets that allowed us to use and employ technology. And that doesn't always necessarily just mean money. It means, you know, we we had a for six years in the from the mid nineties until the early two thousands, I had a forty thousand square foot ground floor space in Dumbo because I was able, me and my colleagues were able to convince the developers of Dumbo, the people who owned most of the real estate in Dumbo, that we would be good for the neighborhood. We would be good for business. And, and if we they gave us space, we would create unique art that would make the neighborhood cool. And we were the very first venue of that kind open in Dumbo. And as many of your listeners will know, that Dumbo is now one of the most sort of vibrant cultural areas in New York and it has tons going on and and some of the high most valuable real estate in New York and it's because of the movement that me and a lot of my peers and colleagues created back then and like that was entrepreneurship in a, in a way but I was still making weird you know experimental avant-garde immersive theater at the time but I just I saw the value of it in it from a commercial standpoint and thought big and and was able to then you know convince others that there's value. I think you know you walk into a room and if you believe it's really valuable, you can make other people believe it's really valuable. And if you believe it's a it's a sort of a, a frivolous indulgence and and that art can't change the world, then then it'll probably be perceived as that. If you were just graduating from college right now, Michael, and you wanted to do this, and it's the coronavirus. We're doing this interview at the end of October 2020. Where would you be looking to go big? Where would you be thinking, hey, here's my, here's where I would dig to try to find those opportunities? You know, I think I've actually often thought about many young colleagues who have, you know, just gotten out of undergrad or graduate school, you know, assistants that I work with. And I've often thought about that. If I were getting out of school now, what would I do if I, if I, knowing what I know? And, and I wouldn't go, even in how you word it, you said, where would you go to find it? Like, I, I, I wouldn't go anywhere to find it. I would go somewhere to make it myself, start it anew. And, and I often thought, like, a few years ago, I remember when, Detroit had just like, you know, hit the bottom and before it started to come up. And I was like, I'm thinking like, man, if I were getting out of college right now, I would convince everybody I know, every artist I know in my school and other schools. And now I'd use social media to do it. And I would just create a movement and basically like say, I'm going to have a party in Detroit and I'm going to go make a cool art scene and you guys should all come join me and, and go somewhere where the, there was a lot of opportunity, where the real estate was cheap, where there was a lot of openness because they had nowhere to go but up, and I would just start making things. And then there are a lot of places in the world where that's the case today. You know, I loved being in Shanghai when I was there. It felt like such a place of opportunity. I think I would go to a place like that, you know, and just buy a building for nothing or next to nothing, and and start making some crazy art and see where that led. Mm, I love that. So, flashing back very quickly, you went to Skidmore College and you majored in theater and economics. And just super quickly, did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Michael, when you graduated? You know, I did, I think. The slight backstory there is I got to college and didn't really know anything about what I wanted to do. Went through my freshman year and was lost. Took a semester off, moved to Southern California, worked, surfed, hung out, 
net girls just, you know, did that for a while. And then I, 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 I had an epiphany in a, about what I wanted and about some insights that I had about taking risks, trying things I hadn't done before. And I went back to Skidmore the second semester of my sophomore year and, and, and got serious. And I took a theater class and very quickly, I just knew that it brought together not so much theater in a traditional sense. Like I've never like taken one of the great plays and staged it because, you know, like I wanted to do my version of Death of a Salesman. I've never done that. I'm not about drama. I'm about you creating experiences. And I saw theater as a part of that. Theater as is was part of a toolkit, but was not the whole game. And as soon as that came together and I realized that I was a director, which was like hit me like a thunderbolt. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And from then on, I just pursued it. I, I had two, really three professors that became mentors to me, and each of them were very different. And I just, I became a sponge and I just learned everything I could and learned how to do everything I needed to do. And, and I started making shows before I had any right to do so. And I went away, when I graduated, I went away to college. I mean, I went away to Europe, came back, worked three jobs for six months, saved $10,000, went back to Saratoga and rented a, a, a storefront and started making theater. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 and it's basically been, that is, the, it's, it's a continuation of that trajectory to, to basically now. I am thinking as you were talking, Michael, that what happened to you when you took a break from school and went out to California and then came back and when things started clicking was it because did you change your major? Did you change your focus in school? It wasn't even a changed it. I didn't have one okay. prior. I just... So you got one. I got one. I got serious and I yes. got curious and, and I went back to Skidmore and I started you know, pulling on the, the coattails of some professors and, and just got excited and started reading the books that they told me to read. And, and, and a few professors in particular who like, I was the kid who, you know, they'd throw out like, ah, oh, you know, you're interested in this kid, read that. And like, I'd go to the library, get the book, read it overnight, go back to them in the morning and say, I read that book and here's what I thought. What else do you got? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I was that kind of energetic sponge. And then I, and I got excited and may, maybe I could have gotten excited about other things, but I think the kind of art and theater that really made sense to me was a pulling together of things that I, when I look back on my earlier life, had been things that I was passionate about and interested in, but I just didn't see, I I hadn't connected the dots yet. Once I connected the dots, like it all came into focus and I was off and running. As you were painting the picture, I had an image in my mind of that plane taxiing down the runway that it was like, you went into hyperdrive, the plane hadn't, maybe didn't have its wings on it yet, but you then found your runway and that's where you got liftoff because yep. you were, you were studying what really interested you and you yeah. couldn't get enough information. You couldn't absorb it quickly enough. Yep. And I think that is what is missing. For so many students in college, because they're trying to reverse engineer their careers, I'm not saying in every instance, but they're trying to figure out, so what is it that's going to get me the job that will help me pay my bills, as opposed to saying, what lights you up? Because unless it lights you up, you're just going to quit that first career or you're going to be miserable in yep. it. That, that is 100% right. And that is, you know, it's it's funny that is part of what has really been the shift for me recently, which is I now know that 
you have to find the thing that lights you up and you have to start with what's working. And, you know, one of the biggest things for me in the last, like a real sort of secret weapon that I've had that has helped me for the last 20 years is working with a coach. And I started working with a coach and I benefited from it. And the questions that the coaches that I worked with asked were like, what do you really want? Like, that's the fundamental question of coaching. What do you really want? Not what does your parent, what do your parents want for you? Or what does society want for you? Or what do your professors want for you? Or your brother, your sister, your girlfriend, your brother? What do you want? And then get proud of it, you know, get excited about it. Believe that you can have it. And then people go after it with everything they've got. That's what happened to me. And because of that, I feel like I had a really blessed career. And a few years ago, I took that model and I started with my, with my coach, a business to help other people have that experience too. And we created a coaching business called A Plan Coaching. And you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm very involved in it. It's, I'm still doing the creative stuff that I've always done. But A Plan Coaching is really about democratizing access to coaching for everyone, including, you know, teens and young adults. And we have a very specific, we've done several pilots with teens and young adults because I think that asking the right questions at the right moment is, changes everything. Mm, And, And I think that, yeah, and that's what we're doing. Fantastic. So two final questions for you, Michael. And I want to go back to some of the other advice that you were given by one of your mentors to go make your own mistakes and ask you to share a time in your professional life when you made a big one. Maybe you failed. And I know you've talked a lot about the importance of making your own mistakes and how you've had many successes and failures. So could you please share one particularly formative failure and most importantly, how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process? Yeah. I mean, the big one that leaps to mind for me was a moment when I didn't trust myself. And I thought when I was starting to make the ride, we had raised money and I felt like I'm going outside of the realm that I've been comfortable in, this sort of avant-garde theater scene, immersive theater. And I said, hey, we're going to make a show because this is where, you know, the kind of show we're looking to do, raise money, do it in mainstream entertainment in New York and Times Square and Broadway. And I went and thought I needed to find experts who did Broadway shows and ask them, you know, about how to how I should make the ride. And I deferred to, to, to a lot of those, you know, so-called experts. And I think it, it set me back and I, it made me not trust my judgment anymore. And what I realized long after is I wish I had raised a lot less money and just gone about it and made my own show and made my own mistakes in that arena and didn't think that because I was moving into a bigger arena that my experience and knowledge and past work was no longer relevant. And and it, and it I and I think it was a mistake. And so if I could do that again, I would not raise $12 million, I'd raise a million dollars and I'd go not look for experts, but I would just trust my voice and perspective and I would buy a, a vehicle and I would start making a show you know, at week three, as opposed to years in after raising millions of dollars, because raising money is the hardest part of all of it to me. And I think that that was, uh, that was sort of, uh, I mean, it could have been the end of the thing. It almost was, but I, we persevered and we got it open and it, it became the thing that it became and it worked. But after that, I, I really trusted my voice again. And I said, I may, it may not be right, but I'm going to, but it's going to be mine if I make something. And that's served me well since then. Love it. So final question, if you could go back to Skidmore and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Michael, 
what advice would you give yourself? I think I would, I mean, you know, I gave the advice earlier to others. I said, think big. I think, I think I would think, I would try and think bigger. I think be willing maybe to not, maybe to, to learn from others. You know, some things you need to reinvent the wheel and then there are other things in which you don't. And it's just reinventing the wheel on things that aren't core to what you're trying to do. You know, they may have a certain satisfaction, but they're not actually, they don't actually advance the cause. One of the things that I've learned through working with a coach, honestly, is that everyone has gifts, things that they do uniquely, like in a world-class way, and then people have capabilities, things that they can do, but other people do just as well and often better than they. And to me, my later life has been about leaning into my gifts, the things that I really uniquely do, thinking about what is the best use of my time and making sure that I'm spending the majority of my time on the things that I do uniquely well and not wasting time on things that I can do, but aren't really what I was put on this earth to do and be. And so I would try and do that better and do that earlier. Beautiful. And I couldn't agree more with that. In fact, have you heard of Dr. Howard Gardner? I'm not. Okay. He's a Harvard University psychologist who about 40 years ago tossed a hand grenade in the middle of the conventional wisdom that said the IQ test was the only measure of a person's intelligence. And he said, no way, that's far too narrow. And he created eight types of intelligence. And I think this speaks to your point, Michael. We all have superpowers. These eight types of intelligences speak to you. These are the things we tend to dismiss especially when we're younger, because they come so easily to us. And it's like, well, everybody can do that. But the thing is, not everybody can. And you have your gifts too, dear listeners. It's just a question of identifying them and leaning into them the way that Michael was advising that he should have done back when and that he's doing now. Michael, I know you place a huge importance on gratitude. I want to express my deep gratitude to you for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. Michael's podcast is called Producing Innovation. If you want to learn how to break into this incredible field of transportive entertainment, immersive entertainment, please check out show notes to see if Michael's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Michael, this was just amazing. I can't wait to hear more, to see more about this amazing drive-in theater restaurant (laughs) that you're creating and the unbelievable things that you will be creating, I have no doubt, in the months and years to come. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. And uh, the drive-in is called the August Moon Drive-In. Keep an eye out for it. Um, This was just such a joy to be with you today. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.